a typical full uh, day. I don't know what yours was like, but wasn't it great to get out in this beautiful weather? Uh, we went uh, early morning. We had a soccer game for Micah, and there's just something about little kids playing soccer. My, my, we've never been a soccer family. Um, I don't know if it's the size of us or what. Uh, we tend to be football and basketball, that sort of thing. But Micah wanted, I played soccer one time. I, I was great at baseball. Um, but then I remember when I was a kid, I played soccer one year, and uh, there was something about going from something you were very good at to something you had no idea what you were doing. So I, I don't know how to cheer uh, Micah on, but uh, we have a lot of fun out there doing that. So we rushed back to the house, and then I headed up to uh, the downtown club at the Met. Uh, we're members down there. It is a squash tennis club. Um, we just use it for the weights and things, but, uh, and also for squash. So, uh, it was, so there was a squash tournament that I was in, and uh, it's not like uh, the vegetable squash. It's the game of squash. If you're not familiar with it, it is played all over the world. It's the fastest-growing sport in the U.S. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I helped a, a, a nonprofit that was bringing the game of squash to reach at-risk kids, uh, teaching them something that primarily it's been kind of an upper echelon, kind of a Ivy League-type school things, but uh, many colleges are beginning to offer it. So for underprivileged kids, it's a great opportunity if they can learn this game and be good at it, uh, plus get a lot of educational support, the potential of uh, them having opportunities that they normally would. And so anyway, they had a tournament to raise money, and uh, they invited me to come and play in it. And so uh, I remember the first time I played squash, literally 10 minutes in, I rolled out of the court and just laid on my back because it's like the, at least squash players say, it's the number one cardio sport in the world. Uh, I believe it. So this this tournament is called... uh, squash till you drop and the way it works you have 10 teams there's five courts you have 10 teams and there's each team has 10 players and you have to dress up so you can imagine I've got this crazy looking shirt on a tall yellow socks and a yellow headband and I'm not I'm looking interesting but that was a mild outfit compared to a lot of them and and the way it works you play four minute games and then you have to run to the to another court and the courts you might be on court one then run to court five and then back to court three so every four minutes you are running and and literally I started off strong uh, but by the end it was quite ridiculous I was so sad uh, Caleb was actually watching me play it was a uh, finally, I had a, about a 13-year-old girl, probably my seventh, which was my, I mean, she should not have been playing. It was awesome. So I kind of caught my breath there and then went into this uh, probably a 65-year-old Indian gentleman. Now, you, yeah, you know what happened. He absolutely killed me, embarrassed me. Um, but anyway, it was a great sport. So then we come back home and then we rush out because it's homecoming, right? And so we go and Josiah, of course, didn't have the belt he needed. So we went and bought him two different belts to look at. Brought him back, and, and then we went to the homecoming game at Heights High School. Reagan, for those of you, Reagan. Uh, Heights High School, went to the football game, then, uh, then, then rushed back home. And, and of course, the, the, the belt wasn't right for, for Josiah, so we had to go get a third, third time out. Got that. Uh, got everybody off. And then, and then Caleb and I did this absolutely crazy thing last night. Uh, at midnight, there were about 1,500, 2,000 bike riders. If you, you were out about, you saw us riding. So there is this moonlight. Uh, what's moonlight? ramble that happens every year and so I've never done it but uh, we had some friends from uh, down in Clear Lake that were going to do it so we came out and we did that and uh, it was good so we got home three o'clock in the morning and I am here with you this morning fired up Uh, but anyway it's a good day Uh, you know John shared last week uh, a little bit uh, as we look forward and and praying through the potential of James coming and and uh, being an associate pastor here, what, what a gift. Uh, part of what God has been stirring in my heart for the last 15 years is, is 
helping fund the kingdom through business. I started my first company 15 years ago. I was doing church planting, and I wanted to take care of my growing family, and so we started a a beverage company back then, my dad and I. And since then, even though I've been involved in a lot of ministries and a lot of church planting and churches, the thing that God had birthed in my heart is this dream to see how do we help fund the kingdom? Um, How do we help fund the kingdom? And uh, so many nonprofits are trying to figure out in church, man, how do we do more? How can we fund the things that God has called us to do and put on our hearts? And so I'm in the process right now of starting a couple companies, um, and it has been this amazing journey. But like in anything for all of us, there are those seeds. God puts us in these places, right? We've talked about this before when I've shared and others have shared, man. There's something that God does in the midst of trial and, and, and struggle and tribulation when you are birthing something or you're going through a hardship or a heartache, there is something that God does in us if we'll take that opportunity and, and run toward him. It will be like, a, I'm going to mention Tozier. There, uh, John's mentioned this recently because it's one of my favorite books, The Pursuit of God. Um, but in that, he talks about being a, a children, the burning heart. Like, like there, God longs for children who have a heart that burns toward him. And there's something that God does. And that's given my journey this last year, year and a half, you know. And you wake up at four in the morning with this knot in your stomach going, what in the world am I dreaming? <laughs> but God, you put this dream in my heart. Yet sometimes it is so, so hard. And uh, over the last six months especially, man, God has just, every day, man, just this desire to, man, Lord, I, I need you. Lord, I want to hear from you. And uh, there is such a beauty in the word of God. And when God puts us in that place where we're finally saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And every day you're, you're looking to him, you're pursuing him, and you want a word from him. Uh, it is amazing how God shows up over and over again. It doesn't mean everything just opens up and everything changes, everything becomes easy. But isn't it amazing how God's word speaks deeply to our hearts? And, and so this morning I wanted to put up, there, there's three verses over the last couple of weeks that God has given me. And uh, I don't know where you are in your life and what's going on, but uh, these were, this scripture has been significant to me. And before we jump into Philippians, uh, I thought I just want to put these up there and just... Listen to them and allow whatever God wants to do in your heart with them. Um, I pray that God would accomplish his desire through the scriptures today. Um, Romans twelve twelve says this. And I, I've decided this is the, the verse of the entrepreneur. And maybe, maybe it's a verse for you. But it says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And then Psalm 1830, it says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And then Matthew 6.34. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Will you pray with me? Father, what a, what a gift to be in this place today with your, your children, God. With my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Lord, I recognize everybody is at a different place. Some uh, maybe uh, are at a place they really feel like they hardly even know who you are. And others have walked with you for many, many, many years, Lord. And um, I guess wherever we are, we just acknowledge you are king, Lord. You are so worthy of all that we have. You're worthy of our lives. And uh, we acknowledge that you are faithful and that your word is powerful. And, Lord, we are so grateful that you invite us to not only know about you, but literally to know you. You desire that our hearts would beat with your heart, that we would love the things you love, that our hearts would break over the things that break your heart. And, Lord, even more amazing than that, you invite us to be a part of all that you're doing in our world and in our community. And, Lord, whatever it is that we're facing in our lives, Lord, it is nothing for you. And so, Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful for this time today to us to be together, to worship through song, to pray, to be able to open the scripture. And, uh, Father, my desire is that you would just speak and, uh, um, and you would be glorified in the midst of all that we, we do today. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. And... Uh, Today, it's kind of interesting. When you come to the scripture, you might go, oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, what kind of sermon are we going to preach out of this? And so uh, I've read over this numerous times this week. And, and really, it's a time where, where it's a very personal, this is a personal letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. And uh, today he holds up uh, two gentlemen, two men, uh, who he is so grateful for, for their lives. And uh, he begins to describe, uh, as he's sending these men to the church at Philippi, um, why they're so significant to him. And so let's just read it together, and then uh, I want to talk some about what I think God wants us to see today. Um, In verse 19 it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him. You might want to underline that. Paul says, I don't have anyone like Timothy. Timothy was uh, born into a family. The father was Greek, and it looks like most likely was an unbeliever. Um, his mother and grandmother are, are of incredible character. They're Jewish, but they came to faith in Jesus. On one of Paul's visits to uh, Philippi, it, it appears that they came to faith, and Timothy came to faith as a very young man. And so when Paul came in contact with them, at some point in their relationship together with the family and everything, Paul invites Timothy to come with him. And he, and he describes the fact that there is no one like him. And, and, and how he describes is that who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel? I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. And then he talks about the second one, and that's Epaphroditus. He says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So uh, Epaphroditus was part of the church of Philippi. And there was at some point when Paul was in need, he's in prison, uh, that the church of Philippi sent 
some goods, some things to take care of Paul, but the most precious thing for Paul that they sent him, in addition perhaps it was money, food, whatever, clothing, but the most precious thing was they sent their brother Epaphroditus. And so he was ready to send him back. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was Ill, ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so when Paul begins to talk about these two men, it's interesting he said there's not very many like Timothy, and yet Timothy's mark was that he was concerned about the needs of others. And, and uh, this is a reflection, he's, I think he's reflecting back to what he wrote earlier in chapter 2. If you look up, if you have your Bibles, I, I didn't print this up here, but I'll read it to you. Um, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out for your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So Paul up there, as he talks to the church of Philippi, then he's urging him to have this. And John talked about, I think the title was How to Have Great Relationships. Uh, but, he, but he took that whole far, first part of that and just talked about, man, the kind of characteristics. To have great relationships, uh, man, it comes to a place where you begin to get so concerned about the others, you're more passionate about the others' needs than maybe even your own. And you begin to look at how to meet those needs. And it's interesting when you look at this part, when he describes Timothy, he said, man, this is so uncommon. The thing that ought to mark us as Christians, the reality is, he says, it is, it is very unusual. And so he has, says, here is Timothy. You know his track record. And so I'm sending him to you. And then he mentions his, uh, Epaphroditus. Notice he says, describes him in three ways. He says, he's a brother. This idea that he, we're part of the same family. We are one. We're in this together. Uh, he says, he's a fellow worker. We're part of the same team. And so he, he was working alongside Paul to see the kingdom of God expanded. And then he describes them as a fellow soldiers, warriors for the same cause. He sold out to Christ. And so again, you, you see this picture that Epaphroditus had the same kind of character. He was passionate about the kingdom of God and seeing the kingdom of God come. Um, it's interesting, one, one of the verses I came across this week that I think speaks to this, it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. You know, so, so often when we talk about looking to the needs of others and not just to our own, I, I, for me, I'm always thinking out how to have a kingdom impact in our world, right? And so the more that we can look to the needs of others and, and, and really show that sacrifice, man, we are passionate about them as people, and we want to see God do something in their life. Uh, and so when I read that, I often think about that. But uh, I think Paul specifically is speaking, in, especially in relation with these gentlemen, it's about them being in this together. They're looking to his needs. They're looking to the body of Christ. 
and, and, and it goes beyond that, but there's something powerful about that. I experienced that last, last night. So uh, when Caleb and I started riding, uh, we, my kids are all kind of like me. We tend to be more risk-taking. We love speed. And so when Susan and I, before we had kids, we had a great tax return one, one year. I don't have tax, great tax returns anymore, but I, I had one uh, before, right after we got married. And so we bought this Trek tandem. And so we've had it for 20-something years. I can't tell you how long we've been married, Susan said, because it makes us look old. But uh, it's over 20 years old, and it's been just, just the greatest thing, because the thing that frustrates me most about riding separate bikes with Susan is she... I can't get a workout, right? And so with a tandem, you can get a workout. So if anybody, we'll rent that tandem. If uh, you want to borrow it, we'll rent it to you. But it's, it's so much fun. And so Caleb loves to ride with me. And Caleb's great because he weighs about 110 pounds and he's strong. And then I don't weigh 110 pounds. So uh, with him, we can really fly. And so the first uh, five miles, we were with our friends and just going so slow, we're about to go crazy. And so we, we left them because they're doing the 10 miles there. We're going to do the 20 mile. And we got to flying, okay? We were passing people. We're feeling great. And, and uh, then we finally get up. with. We think we're in the front of the whole race. But it turns out we weren't, but it felt like we were. So uh, we were right out in front. We got this young 16-year-old kid. I mean, so we're going back and forth, back and forth. And, then, and so I'm pacing myself because we're getting toward the end, right? And so we, we're just going to vent behind them, you know? And, uh, and then we're coming up on this red light and the police are saying, stop, stop. And I don't hear him first because at first, because I'm old, I can't hear out of this ear. Uh, but then I hear him, I stop. This young kid just goes right through the light, right? And he's just flying. So, I mean, our hearts are broken. All the other guys catch up with us. And uh, so then we start going together and I had these two really good riders and said, man, that, that kid ran the red light and we were going to beat him. And so we start doing that. I don't know, it's venting or so, you know, like in the Olympics, it was, or, you know, Tour de France. So we're all doing that. And we catch that kid. Remind me of that Olympic race where that, I think that American, you know, she was way up in the front and those, did you see that race? There, she got past at the very end. That's what it was like, man. We're venting. He's by himself all alone. And uh, eventually we, we passed. It was great until we hit a train at the end and we had to wait 20 minutes and everybody caught up. But it was exciting. It was exciting. It just, for me, it just hit this, this picture. You know, there, there's something beautiful. It's, what, it's about being part of community. I think what Paul was saying, man, we are about something so much bigger than just ourselves. And so often when we approach the scriptures, we think individually. We think individually. It's our relationship with God. It's us enjoying him, which is true. But so often for the, the, uh, the Jewish community in that day, they thought in a com- communal kind of way. And so often the scriptures, inter- it's really read and interpreted and understood in, in the context of community. And so when Paul's saying to look out for the interest of others, it was this idea, what does it look like for the church to be a people who are constantly looking out for the interest of each other? And then beyond that, for the interest of the community that we've been called to, to impact with the, the love of Christ. And, and so there is that picture here, I think, that, that uh, they're giving us. And there's such power in that when we do this in community, whether it's your family. What happens when you begin to figure out what it looks like to live? Um, where in, within your family unit, everybody is in there. And that takes maturity, but to get that place where you're beginning to look to the interest of other, each other more than yourself. Or within the church or within the different causes you're involved in or even at work. What does it look like for you and the other Christians that are in your workplace to begin to love each other in this way? To look out for your interests and begin to share that around. It's a powerful thing. When we look not only out for our own interests but for the interests of others. We look out for them. And what, when that happens, God's kingdom comes. 
when we begin to look out for the interest of others, right? I think what we see in this picture of, of the scripture is that God's kingdom literally comes. And that's why I think he, when he's referring to Peter, uh, or to Timothy up there, and he, and he says, uh, he talks about that he looks out for your interest, but he, he look, says he looks out for the interest of Christ. He connects this idea of when you're, you're caring about others' interests, you're, you're really caring about Jesus Christ because his kingdom happens when we begin to meet the needs of others in his name. And then when his kingdom comes, what God wants done is done. In verse 5 it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it's that picture, man, that Jesus gave his life away and we're to do the same. When we are concerned for the welfare of others, we are seeking the interest of Jesus Christ. And so as we think about that and we understand that and we believe that, I think the question that comes to my mind is why is that so hard to do? Why in that day would, would Paul kind of describe Timothy and, uh, as a man saying, this is very, very unusual. The vast majority of people tend to look out for their own interests rather than the interests of others. And uh, I think that is often true even as Christians. It is an ongoing battle. Why, why is that? Um, well, the title of my sermon, uh, my talk today was this idea of living on the other side of the self-life. And so part of what I've been doing just in the last couple, couple weeks has been really rich is just read through that. So when I get up, I try to get up early in the morning, about 5 in the morning before uh, all the, the craziness happens at my house. And so I've been reading through uh, this book again. And, and so Tozier talks about this idea of the self-life. And for me, when I, when I looked at that, because I just asked that question, why, God? And, and what, it's so easy to talk about this, and I know it's beyond just willpower, because I can be so selfish and self-focused. And, and God, what is it in me that needs to change? How can that not just be something I will to do, but that I can begin to experience your power to love people in this kind of way? Um, it'd be true, there's some quotes I want to put up here for you to look at, but... Uh, in his book on page 34, he says this. It says, God formed us for his pleasure and so formed us that we, as well as he, can in divine communion enjoy the sweet, mysterious mingling of kindred personalities. He meant us to see him and live with him and draw our life from his smile. But we, talking about mankind, has broken with God and we have ceased to obey or love him and in guilt and fear have fled as far as possible from his presence. And so Tozer there kind of laying the groundwork. He said, man, we were created for this. God created us. And we believe it. Most of us believe that, right? And we've experienced that in different seasons, different times. And we know what that's like. Where we are walking so closely with the Lord, we come to him and we experience a life that is changed, right? And also we begin as we, we 
we pursue him and we seek him through worship, through prayer, through the scriptures. There's times where God just, his, his presence is so real to us. And his heart is beating with our heart and it is, those moments are unbelievable. But there is a difference between when we think about God's presence. The reality, God's presence is with us, right? He's omnipresent. He is here in our midst. But there's a difference between his omnipresence and the manifest presence of God. And in the book, he talks some about that. But he begins to give this picture of the tabernacle where God's presence was there, right? But his ultimate presence, his manifest presence was in the very inner circle, the holy of holies. And there was a, this huge veil, whether it's talking about the tabernacle or ultimately the temple temple there was a there was this veil that separated the holy of holies where God's manifest presence was right and when Jesus I mean this great picture when Jesus was crucified and ultimately died we we know the story man and we're going to celebrate it in a few couple months wow it's coming up um but yeah where the literally the the veil was torn in two we gave us this beautiful picture of the fact that in Jesus our sins are forgiven and that we can know him. and Literally the Holy Spirit can indwell us as, as followers of Jesus. And so Jesus died that the veil would be torn in half. And then another quote from him on page 43. He, he says this, We sense that the call is for us, but often we still fail to draw near. And the years pass, and we grow old and tired in the outer courts of the tabernacle. What hinders us? And this isn't true for all of us, but I think all of us can identify these seasons and these times, right? That we settle for less of knowing him and experiencing him. It is the veil of our fleshly fallen nature living on, unjudged within us, uncrucified and unrepudiated, it is a woven of the fine threads of the self-life. There's, there's the, the word, self-life. The hyphenated sins of the human spirit. They're not something we do, they're something we are. And therein lies both their subtlety and their power. So what Tozier says, there is a veil that we often can experience in our heart and our life. That we can believe all the right things about the Lord, but often in daily experience, we miss it. And so what he begins to talk about, and I think are so true, there are the sins of the self-life. And these often keep us from experiencing all of the Lord that he wants us to experience. And that he so changes us and as we walk with him that we are able to, to love others and to lay our die down for others and, and consider others better than ourselves. And so he speaks specifically about this idea, some of them are self-righteousness or self-pity. Or self-sufficiency, self-love, self-centeredness, self-promotion. And so when you talk about self-righteousness, it's this idea, you see it, so often we believe all the right things and we begin to take pride in what we know and we believe, right? And we can become so puffed up by who we are, our heritage and all that, instead of just recognizing that we are broken, we are sinful, and God's grace has saved us. And there's this humility and appreciation for the king that has given us all, that has saved us. Or the self-pity when life is so hard, we can just find ourselves so focused on how life has not been fair or how hard life is, and we just get stuck in the self-pity. And that's easy to help. And Or this self-sufficiency, where we live life just 
in our own power and just recognizing, you know, uh, we can do it on our own. And the Lord has amazing ways in his gentle and sometimes very forceful way of putting us in those places where we hopefully recognize that we can't. But I don't know if you're like me, but, you know, in those seasons when I have plenty or things become easy again, I so easily can move back into those places of self-sufficiency or self-love. I, I might, you might say self-centeredness, where life is just becomes all about us. I've talked before, and it always reminds me of this, that, uh, uh, that whole idea of cat theology versus dog, dog theology. Uh, and that how in the Western world we have this dog theology. You know, when we approach the scriptures with this idea, it's all about me, right? Dogs tend to be, uh, or that cat theology, no, cat theology, cat theology, where it's all about me. Now, I like cats. I've had cats, but cats tend to be often more independent than dogs, right? So that's this idea, man. We think we approach the scripture that it's all about us, right? And so we read it with that, that deal. It's about our joy and our happiness, and you see it all over the place. Versus this idea of dog theology where it's all about him. The dogs tend to be all about you as an owner. And I mean, they're passionate, they're licking you, they're jumping all over you. And uh, it's all about you. And that's, uh, I think, how the scriptures want us to approach it. The scripture, it's all about God. And so the self-life can, can just hurt us. So I want to put up some words in, in just a few more minutes here. I'm going to put some words up on, on, the, on the screen and, and just begin to think about. Um, as you look at those words, do they describe the kind of self-life for you or a kingdom kind of life, a Jesus kind of life? And the first one is actually words. And, you know, so much by what we say, say says so much about where our heart is, right? So what are the words that you speak? What does it look like? Do you speak more words of blessing over people? Do you tend to see more of the positive or, or the hope more for the better? Or are your words more critical? You know, it's amazing in uh, these political times how nasty things become. And even in politics in general, you know, what you, we tend to move toward, it's not just politics and life, but if somebody doesn't agree with you or believe in you, you know, that you're either with me or you're against me kind of thing. And, and Often our words can be so cruel. So you see that in the candidates and the cruelness of their words and the hate. But you, we can also become like that in other people, you know. And so when we begin to recognize, I mean, do you make comments on people and the, what you think their motives are or what they look like or this sort of thing? You know, it's amazing when we begin to recognize that God has created every person and that he, they are deeply loved by him. And sometimes I go, man, when I find myself saying things or speaking things, uh, I go, man, God, you love those people. They are incredibly valuable to you. And I'm speaking words that are, are uh, mean and critical and, and, and that type of thing. And so as you think about your words, are, you, are your words, do they speak words of faith? Are they, do they speak words of blessing? Um, how about your dreams and goals? You know, are our dreams and goals outside of what, even asking the question, man, God, what do you want me to dream? What are your things you want me to drive? Our dreams and goals are, are critical, but I think God wants to often birth those in us. And so sometimes we, in the self-life, we kind of separate that from God and we just begin to pursue the things that we want versus the things that God wants. How do you make decisions? Do we bring God in the midst of all the decisions that we make? 
Or are decisions made outside of who he is and what he wants? How do we spend our time? What do our relationships look like? Um, These are the sort of things that begin kind of a litmus test of God, man, where is my heart? Where is my life? Let me me read one more uh, Tozer quote. Because the question becomes, like, how do we change, right? How, how do we move from this self-life to a better kind of life? How do we get to the other side of that in a consistent basis? Uh, I, I like what Tozer says here. Let us be aware of tinkering with our inner life, hoping ourselves to rend the veil. God must do everything for us. Our part is to yield and trust. We must confess, forsake, repudiate the self-life, and then reckon it crucified. The cross is rough and it is deadly, but it is effective. It does not keep its victim hanging there forever. There come, uh, comes a moment when it work, its work is finished and the suffering victim dies. After that, it is resurrection, glory, and power. And the pain is forgotten for joy that the veil is taken away. And we have entered an actual spiritual experience, the presence of the living God. So, let me, let me close with three points. The first one is that the other side of the self-life is a Jesus life. You know, to move to this place of where we are not focused on ourselves and uh, we begin to, to be moved from that, that self-focus, the self-sufficiency, uh, all those self-things uh, is not a matter of willpower. Or it's not this jump from the other, other side of, of the self-life to other life. It, it is a jump to the Jesus life where he is king. And we are running after him. The second thing is this. A Jesus life, what I'd say, a.k.a. is a kingdom life, becomes an other's life in the most beautiful way. You know, I, what begins to happen is we are pursuing Jesus and he... And we're encountering him, and he begins to change us and, and moves in our heart. And we're continuing to walk with him, and we're dreaming his dreams and desires. And we're part to be a part of what he wants us to do. It's always in connection with other people, right? His kingdom expanding is about uh, seeing people's lives impacted with the power of the gospel. And so as we begin to live this kingdom kind of life... Um, what that begins to unfold in all of our relationships, it becomes an amazing, beautiful picture as God's kingdom comes in those places. So even in the midst of the most broken relationships or our most broken lives, as we pursue him and begin to walk with him and he starts his amazing work, um, as that begins to affect all of our relationships, it is a, it is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture. And then third thing I'd say is that the process to get there is accomplished by God, but requires at some point an effort from us. It's always accomplished by God. And I, did, I said at some point, because I recognize for all of us, we're at different places, right? And as God is pursuing us and, and longing for us to come to him, and he gives us all these experiences that are, are, are working in our heart, there's places of brokenness. There's places where we need to experience his forgiveness or his healing, um, we need to have place. Some of you have been traumatized in your life in different places. What I've seen, uh, those, those, those places of trauma that, that often trigger maybe behavior that you don't even like. 
at all. That there's a process of healing, right, that God takes us through. But the longing is for God is for you to come to the place where in those very places of trauma and brokenness and pain that you experience the healing power of the Lord as he loves you. And that that is a process. So what we need to recognize is the process to get there is always accomplished by God. We only draw near to him because he first drew near to us, right? We only seek him because he is seeking after us. And so it always begins with God. But there is a point in our journey where we make the choice. Saying, God, man, I am going to make all my effort to pursue after you. We have our part. We seek hard after him. And so this morning, as you think about the other side of the self-life, I think of it as a coin. We have this self-life. And then the opposite side is this Jesus life. And when we encounter Jesus and he continues to work in our life, how he unfolds this loving others and and considering others more than ourselves is, is absolutely beautiful. And that is when we begin to see God's kingdom come in amazing ways. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And I invite the the worship team to come up as, as we pray, um, as we worship together. Um, Father, I I thank you for the scriptures and uh, um, just how in the midst of of your word, you reveal yourself. And Lord, your your promise is that your word never returns void and that, uh, Lord, your your word is powerful and that it can bring conviction, but your word heals, Lord. Your word gives us wisdom and shows us the way. And and so, Lord, I, I pray for every person here. Lord, knowing that you know them, that you love them. And, Lord, you have given us the privilege of being in community. And, and Lord, I pray that in increasing ways you will help the White Oak community be uh, just this picture of what we see in um, Paul's life with these brothers and, and what it meant for them to share life together, to look to each other's needs and to look to the kingdom and, and, and the adventure of being a part of see, doing your work together. And, God, as a White Oak family, that is what we desire to do. And so, Lord, as we close our time, I I pray literally, Father, that your kingdom would come in each of our hearts, our lives, exactly where it needs to. And that we would turn and we would pursue you, Lord, with all that we have. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.